Thanks so much, uh, Padma. This is, uh, as Padma said, I'm uh, Mike Metzger, and over the next 30 minutes or so, I'm going to share with you uh, my, I don't know, the last 20 some odd years of my career. I've been in education for 31 years total, and the last 20 or so were in the workforce. And um, what I'm going to share today is really how we chose the programs, the workforce programs we built, and then how we developed and measured those programs. And hopefully I can finish this all in about half an hour. Uh, full disclosure, this is the first time I'm ever presenting to a large group of people. Uh, it's a little bit terrifying. I mean, in person all the time, but virtually this is new to me. I was pretty nervous about it until about Tuesday, that when I realized if I completely bit this thing, I won't be able to see the disappointment in your eyes, and it made me feel a lot better. So without further ado, let me get started here. Um, what I want to start with is a really great survey back from 2013. The folks at uh, Lumino were working with Gallup, and they heard a lot of discontentment from employers weren't getting what they needed. So they asked employers across the nation, and basically what they asked is whether or not the skills the students are coming out of college today, in fact, needed the needs of their specific industry. And the results were quite poor. 11% uh, of business leaders strongly agreed that the kids coming out had the skills they needed. And even if you more generously interpreted, at least somewhat agreeing, less than a third, a third of business leaders felt those kids coming out of school had the skills their business needs. And bear in mind, you could easily spend a quarter million dollars on an undergraduate education right now, and hearing this kind of result was disheartening. But the story gets a little more interesting. In 2014, Inside Higher Ed basically took a look at the same question and said, Let's just turn this internally. So they took basically the same question and they asked 600 plus chief academic officers how good of a job they felt they were doing preparing students for the world of work. And as those of you who work in higher ed might not be surprised to find out, 96% of chief academic officers believe they're doing a good job. So 11% of the employers, 96% of the chief academic officers. I can't express how much I love this survey. I was about 15 years into the workforce part of my career where this came out, and these two questions did a better job encapsulating the disconnect than I was able to with a lot more words. And before I move on from this, I do want to stress a point. Uh, I've given this statistic quite a bit, I've given this data quite often, and for those of you in the audience, what I don't want you to take away from this, the, what I'm not saying by this data is the issue is not that folks in higher ed don't care, are disconnected, that the eggheads, that is not at all the point. I served 31 years in higher education, and I found the people I worked, I served with, to be passionate and dedicated and deeply invested in the success of their students. So please don't let that be the message. I do want the message to be that there's a disconnect. And the disconnect, I believe, comes from structure that the community college system inherits its structure from the university, the university inherits its structure from University of Bologna about a thousand years ago. So my contention is university college was not set up to be job training, but as high schools have advocated a lot of that responsibility over the last 40 years, it has fallen to the community college to deliver this. And to give you just a small example of this, if you think about how the university was structured, it was meant for young people in a small window of their life where they could dedicate full time to education. And it's a delightful, wonderful, powerful thing, but it doesn't fit everybody. 
those of us who are young people more so today are going to have to go back to school multiple times. So just as a thought exercise, those of you in the audience who are listening to me right now, if you lost your job today and you needed to upgrade your skills, when would you want to start training? And once you started training, would you want the training to be for a predetermined amount of time where you learn to set material, or we just want to learn the stuff you don't know already and move on? And as you're going through your education, once you had enough skills to go to work, would you want to wait until graduation, or would you want to start the work the day you're ready? And for those of you in the audience who have families to feed and those sorts of things, I know the answer to your question. You want to start training immediately. You only want to learn the stuff you don't know already, and you want to get to work as soon as humanly possible. Because when you're 38 with kids going back to school, it's not the same experience. So when I started working on this problem, my initial conclusion was the structure was wrong, and we had to kind of look at restructuring things. In order to do this, I needed sort of a, a north star, something that could uh, guide everything we developed. So we ultimately came to conclude that we were built on a foundation of two promises. To the students who come to workforce programs, the promise needs to be long-term economic self-sufficiency. Means when they get out of there, they'll be able to get a job and support themselves without state assistance. But the other promise we need to make is to employers. And the promise we need to make to employers is that our graduates are great employees. And those promises sound simple, but they're surprisingly complex when you go to deliver on them. So necessarily, some of the corollaries. If we're promising long-term economic self-sufficiency, that necessarily means that there will be jobs in this field, in our region. Those jobs pay a living wage, and really should lead to a thriveable wage, and that the students will be able to get those jobs upon graduation. If these things aren't all true, we're not gonna be able to deliver on that promise. And to our promise to the employers about great employees, one of the things I would highlight is a great employee is far more than a skilled individual. It's not somebody who's just doing, who's good at doing stuff. A great employee is a whole set of skills and employers are incredibly clear that the soft skills of the job are as important as the hard skills of the job. <clears throat> and towards this end, there was a wonderful study done back in 2010. Dr. Richard Nagel at the University of South Carolina, on behalf of the South Carolina WIB, was tasked to ask from employers two questions. The state wanted to know what matters when you hire somebody and what matters when you decide to keep somebody. So they did a statewide survey, good cross-section of industries asking those two questions. And the data that come back are telling. So what matters when you hire? is first and foremost, attitude. Attitude tops the chart, interpersonal skills, communication skills. And as you look farther down the chart here, and this is on a four point scale, academic preparation and previous experience are much farther down the line here. I wanna be clear, this isn't the bottom of traits. There's a whole list of about 40, so these are still among the top. But if you look at what matters to employers, they care far more about attitude and ability to get along when they hire. Similarly, when employers decide to make a decision as to whether or not they want to keep someone, the data still looks very similar. Attitude still king here. Looking further down the list, technical competence is near the bottom of the top ones, and it's a pretty precipitous drop. This is not to say that employers don't value technical competence. Of course they do. However, a good employer sees the relationship as a long-term one. 
As such, hard skills come in time. If you show up to work every day and try to be a little bit better than you were yesterday, a good employer knows you will eventually be highly competent at your job. But what this means to us in education, if employer, if we're trying to make people economically self-sufficient and we need them to get hired, we have to respond to what matters to employer. And again, soft skills are king on this. I cannot underscore that enough. So going back to our promise to students here, we need to answer some questions. When we're thinking about developing a program, the first thing we need to know is, are there in fact any jobs? Do those jobs in fact pay a livable wage? And if we do, can we expect our graduates to get those jobs? So those, when you're considering any new program, really need to be the first things you're looking at. And so I'm gonna kind of move over how we did program selection in New York and New Jersey and back in Arizona. Working within a community college system, the reality is 80% of your students will probably stay within 35 miles of that college for the remainder of their working years. So what this means, particularly when you're community college or any regional training program, you need to train people for the jobs that are in your area. First step is to define your, to define your area. When I was most recently with Onondaga Community College, for us, it was Onondaga County and the four counties around it. So when we want to know if there are any jobs, don't take a look at national data. Don't take a look at state data. Take a look at your regional data. I cannot recommend highly enough uh, Burning Glasses Labor Insight. If you haven't used their tool, these delightful nerds from Boston have built this tool that spiders across the internet and pulls down across, I think, 80,000 job boards, new postings every day, and it catalogs them all in a database. So I'm able to see how many auto mechanics were working in these five counties. And what I like about the, the data is that it actually pulls from real job postings, which means there's somebody in your area willing to pay for this skill. I find it's the best set of data I'm able to get on this. So first step, we look at burning glass, make sure there are enough jobs. If there are enough jobs, the next question goes immediately to, do they pay living wage? Uh, in order to that, you need to know two things. You need to know what living wage is in your area. And you can go to livingwage.mit.edu and look that up. And I want to be clear, this is the survival wage. This is what it needs to make all the money to cover all your bills in a month for a single individual. So this is not a target. This is the floor. If programs make less than this, it means you're putting people into poverty after they graduate. And I do not believe it is appropriate for a workforce training program to give people a set of skills yet leave them in poverty. You need to build programs to get them out of poverty. So when you know what living wages, you can then go to Bureau of Labor Statistics, get the wage data for your area, and see if these two match. So if it turns out that yes, in fact, there are jobs that they pay livable wage, we now have the last question of, can my students get that job? And you can't answer that question without going out to talk to industry. And I want to stress this. Uh, when I was working at Raritan Valley Community College in New Jersey, we noticed a spike in welding jobs. And they were high paying jobs and there were a decent amount of them, but probably 70% of them were coming from this one company called Racewell. We went out and we talked to the folks at Racewell, learned about their business, and they do repairs for high performance race cars. So if you're gonna work for them and you're gonna be fixing a car that breaks 200 miles an hour, you need to be highly skilled. So much so that they wouldn't consider anybody with less than 10 years experience and they really wanted 15 or more. 
If we hadn't gone out and had that conversation, we never would have understood there was no way for our graduates to work at Gracewell because they needed 10 years of experience between that. So again, data is great, but when you get close to making a decision, you have to go out and talk to your employers. <clears throat> Excuse me. So when we start this, uh, we use the burning glass data we had. We get to see who's been hiring in our area. We always prefer to talk to people who are hiring because those are our customers. But we leverage the other relationships we can have. We always had a good relationship with the chamber, any industry serving organization. We look for the soft handoff to introduce us to the local employers in our region. And um, we're not above shamelessly cold calling, but essentially we try to get together a, a, a decent amount of folks who want to talk to us. And uh, our initial conversations, usually pretty general, talks about what we do. We're looking to build programs that have better aligned to your needs. We want to make sure graduates have the skills that you require. And uh, the main thing we want to confirm with the, with the employer at that point is that they're open to hiring people who are coming out of school. We touch base about other things like hiring, wage certifications, those sorts of things. But really, what we're looking for right now are panelists. And if you get bogged down in this process, if in reaching out to a particular industry, you cannot get employers to the table to talk about workforce, my counsel to you is to think long and hard about looking for a different program to run. The, what I'm gonna describe here really works as a symbiosis between the employers, the students and the program, that the employers will come to the table Either they don't have a strong enough need or they just can't focus on it right now, but if you can't get good industry partners, don't build a program is my advice to you. So at this point, we start formalizing our partners and to be our partners, they've got to do one of uh, four things for us. Either they participate in our panels, they participate in task analysis, they will provide job shadowing, or they provide practicum opportunities. But these become our formal partners. We have other people we'll talk to. But the people here are the ones we use to build and get feedback on our programs. So if we've gotten through all the check marks, there are jobs, they pay a good wage, there are employers in our region who want to hire or are willing to move forward, we begin our program development. So as we move on to program development, and everything we do is really, the curriculum nerds in the audience, we use SCID, systematic instruction, uh, systematic curricular instruction and instructional design, but it's really built around the DACUM methodology. And DACUM is a horrible acronym, I didn't invent it, developing a curriculum, DACUM. Uh, if you don't like the name, blame the Canadians, they came up with it in the late 60s. Though the name isn't great, it's amazing as a process. Uh, what I like so much about it is at the heart of the process, the belief is if you want to be a great butcher, baker, candlestick maker, if you want to build a program to make great butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, you go to the people who are great at their job and you learn from them. And that's the heart of the baking process is working with experts to develop quality programs. And this sort of for us has a three-phase three process here. The first meeting we set is with managers. So the first set of people we want to talk to from our, our, our partners are managers, supervisors, anyone who does the hiring, firing, judging of the graduates we're going to put out in the field. And we look for a good cross-section of those folks, about uh, 8 to 12, whether that's union, non-union, private, public, small, large, whatever fits a particular employer demographic of your region, but get a representative sample. So you get those folks in a room, 
And the very first thing you do is nail down exactly what job you're talking about. You get a clear profile on what they're looking for when they hire, large discussion around soft skills. But this isn't the most important meeting. This meeting we're actually setting up to get to a more important meeting. So at the end of the manager panel, the thing we tell all the managers is back at your garage, office, shop, you have an employee who represents excellence, someone who's just the bee's knees, who you wish everybody, wish all your other employees were like. We want to borrow that person for a day because we want to learn to make people like that person. And we're usually pretty clear with them that we're not looking for your um, highest, you're not looking for your 10-year shop veteran. We're looking for someone who's in the job or been recently promoted, but still very familiar with the day-to-day -day of that job. So at the end of the manager panel, that ends, and usually a couple weeks later, we will uh, convene the um, expert worker panel. So similarly, same company, same stuff, but they've just sent us now their panel of expert workers. So we're now surrounded by a room of people who've been identified as their employers as excellent. And I want to stress this, because at times I think we talk to the wrong person. If you're looking for a great programmer, you don't actually want to talk to Sundar Pichai at Google. You want to talk to somebody who works for you. <clears throat> and I'll tell you, when I first heard about the Bacon process, I'll have to concede, I was a bit skeptical. Because I asked, so you're going to put a dozen strangers in a room and ask them for eight hours to talk in excruciating detail about their job. And the folks at EKU said, yep. And I didn't think it would go well. It turns out it goes incredibly well. It turns out that, employer, uh, that employees love to talk about their jobs and enjoy this opportunity. But I would say almost every panel we've ever had has been highly enjoyed uh, by the participants. And during this time, we get to take the job, and all jobs can be broken down into a series of duties, tasks, skills, knowledge, abilities, and traits. But suffice it to say, you can think of it like a blueprint. So for the manager panel, we got the blueprint on what makes the good soft skills. From the expert workers, we've got the panel on what makes the what's the blueprint for the hard skills of the job. What are they, how do they actually spend their time? So at this point, we have everything we need to know that it describes the great employee. So the next step becomes task analysis, because the question now is how do we measure? We may have learned that as an auto technician, Sally needs to be able to change oil. How many, how often, how fast? What's your tolerance for error? These are the questions surrounding that. So during task analysis, we break down all the tasks to understand what it looks like when they're done right, when they're done well, when they meet the standards of industry. Because our goal is to turn out employees who, when they show up, are able to perform at the level expected by industry. So during task analysis, we work with the expert workers to get those. And those basically become our metrics for the program. So we know what makes a good employee. We know how to measure it. We have almost everything we need now. And we're able to build our programs directly from the data materials. We know what they want. We know how to measure it. So, that's how we get the curriculum that we teach. And there's a few of the design principles I'd like to touch base on here. One of our main goals is to right-size the program. Again, bringing you back to our core promise, we promised long-term economic self-sufficiency. Every day you are in school and training is a day you are not, you are not earning and you are spending. So school puts you further into debt. 
As such, we want to make sure that the program is built the right size. And for the math nerds out in the audience, the standard I use is necessary and sufficient. Necessary implies that the things we teach you have been deemed needed. More importantly, we don't teach things that industry didn't say are important because we don't want school to be any longer than it needs to be because we want to get you to work as soon as possible. However, we also need it to be sufficient. And sufficient means if you learn everything you're supposed to, you'll be able to be successful in this field. So our goal is to right size all of the programs. And uh, from there, when we have them, the question of how do we know if we're doing a good job? And honestly, there is one key metric to this, and that is in-field placement at living wage. So if a student graduates our program, they work in that field and they make living wage, check, that's a win. Anything else is not a win. It's a tough measure to stick to, but I recommend it because it keeps your eye on the ball and it keeps your eye on the promise and it makes sure you deliver on what you're supposed to. And we track this for two years. It's great to know that a student got a job at graduation. It's more interesting to know that they're still employed in two years. So uh, working in community colleges, we are open enrollment. Nevertheless, our goal in all of this, the students who come to our program has always been good fit. We're not looking for meat in the seat. So in order to do this, all the students coming in, we assessed, we use the college's AccuPlacer, but any one of those tests is fine. We use a soft skill assessment, and should you need one, I highly recommend the company AlignMark. They have a research validated soft skill assessment. And then we would interview the students to make sure that their goals were employment and that they understood what kind of program this was. So for all the students who are coming in, we make sure they had the good basic skills necessary. We make sure they understood the commitment of the program. And if we got signs that any of these weren't positive, we'd be very honest with the student. If we didn't see a high likelihood of success, we would always sit down with the student and we would have that conversation because we don't want to take in students who can't be successful. And that brings me to our second metric. Our second important metric for us is retention. Once we make the commitment to the student that we're going to start this, this journey together, we really want them to finish it. So the students coming in, students coming out, perfection would be everyone came, everyone started, everyone finished. So we shoot for that. We don't always hit it, but we do better than most on this. And we are very aggressive when students miss class about seeing where they are and following up. We're very plugged into additional support services when that needs to be the issue. But uh, we have a student, we have a full-time student success coordinator whose job is to support our students while they're here because life certainly does happen. So if you take our retention rate and our infield placement rate and you multiply those two numbers together, you basically get a program quality coefficient. A perfect one would be a program co quality coefficient of one, which means every student who starts, finishes, and gets a job in field at living wage. It's not a number we typically hit, but it is the number we always strive for. So a couple of the design things I want to mention here about our program delivery. All of our programs have job shadowing. And I feel very strongly about job shadowing. I feel very strongly about doing it early. And this came from earlier on in my career. We had a nursing student who got to her third block of nursing. And when she got up to be around patients, it turned out she didn't like to touch people. So nursing wasn't a fit for her. But she spent a year studying to be a nurse before she got to this. I think that's an enormous mistake. I think students need to see the job early and often. 
And we work with our employer partners and our employment placement coordinator to provide these experiences. And we're really clear with our employer partners, don't do a dog and pony show. If the job is hot, the job is smelly, the job is cold, loud, let the students see it because we wanted them to know as early as possible, as realistically as possible, what they were getting into. And what's interesting is that wasn't what we had designed it for, but in practice it's gone the other way, where we had designed it thinking it would kind of maybe help shake out people who weren't sure. It turns out the effect it actually has, more often than not, they come back excited. They can see the job they're going to have, they understand the connection of what's going on in school, but all my programs have a job shadowing component. So after job shadowing, they'll go through their program. The programs are designed to be competency-based, as open entry and open exit as possible. And they'll go through and demonstrate all the competencies that were developed during task analysis. So to get to the end of the program, and we think we've got it right. Industry said, here are the skills we need. Check, they've got the skills. As the level, as decided. But the thing is, we want to be sure we got it right. So at the end of our program, we ask all the students to go through a practicum. Generally speaking, they're about 100 hours long, but industry actually sets the length. During the Dakin process, one of the questions we ask employers is, what do you need to, how long do you need to kick the tires until you're sure you've got the right candidate? And generally speaking, we hear two to three weeks, so it's around 100 hours. So we send the students out to the practicum. So usually two to four weeks later, they're done. We ask a ton of feedback about their performance. Most of that data we just use towards program improvement. The one question that matters for the student's future is we ask the employer, if you were hiring today, would the student be a serious contender? And if they tell us yes, we're very happy, we're done, we've done a good job, we move on. But if the employer says, no, I, uh, I have some concerns, we come in in excruciating detail. We get down all the concerns about where the student is deficient, where the student is weak. We pull the student back into our program. We sit down with them. We share the results of the practicum. If the employer is willing to sit on that discussion with our employee, with the student, that's ideal. But we don't put pressure on that issue. Uh, we explain to the student what they need to do. We get their skills back up, and we put them back out in the industry. But the trick is, you won't get to graduate one of my workforce programs until one of my partners, one of my people who writes a paycheck, says you're ready. And they do this for two reasons. One is out of deference and respect to employers. At the end of the day, they are the best judge of this. But secondarily, I do this because very often it helps the student get hired at the practicum site. But if not, they have an employer, a local employer, who's willing to say they're a contender they're a reference, and at that point, it's very useful in getting students into jobs after that. So after practicum, they go out uh, to get a job. We have a full-time employment engagement staff. Uh, their job is to play matchmaker. Because of our relationships with employers, we generally know them and their work culture. We generally know the student because the employment engagement staff starts working with the student at about halfway to start thinking about jobs. So they play matchmaker. and. Bottom line on this, our employment placement staff, their marching orders are you work with the student until either A, they have a job in field at living wage that they're happy with, or B, they say, for the love of God, stop calling my house and just don't want to work in this field. So the only time we quit is when the student quits. And that's our commitment to them. We always tell our students our commitment will match yours. 
Uh, <clears throat> once they're placed, we um, continue to track them for two years. We follow up with employers with surveys. We also work with the state to get employment data and wage data. And essentially, all the data that comes in in program improvement, we look for trends. So if we notice a lot of our students were weak at replacing brake pads, well, we want one student is bad, well, that could just be that student. But if we hear it a lot, we go back and we look at how we're measuring. We make sure we're measuring right. We make sure the instructor is holding the standard. But all of the data we get from employers about our student performance drives our continuous improvement process on this. So we don't ever let our programs get rusty. We don't ever let our programs stop satisfying our employer. So uh, I'm just at about 30 minutes here. Uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and turn this over for some uh, Q&A, if you have anything. Uh, I'm going to switch back over here. And there's my email if you need it. All right, so I've uh, got some questions. All right, so uh, one of the questions I see here is, how can you measure soft skills? Uh, that's a fantastic question, and I'll tell you, it pained me for years. Because you know it when you see it. If you go out to a restaurant and the waiter has good soft skills, you just know immediately that they're there. But when you're trying to actually say someone's met a standard, how do you do it? So my answer is I use a uh, test developed by the company AlignMark or Learning Resources Incorporated. You can Google them or call me. I'm happy to set you up with them. But what they've done is they have six and a half million data points that are taken from real world experience. So the test they use, it's a video based test. It has around 18 questions. I like it being videotaped because it's videotaped because it takes reading comprehension off the table. And all you have to do are watch scenarios at work, pick what you think the best option is, what you think the worst option is, and what they're able to tell you because they have six and a half million real data points at work is people who do well at work answer this way, and people who do poorly at work answer this way. And what I love so much about it, uh, I'm trained as an engineer, and we built our first program, Eliyahu came to work for me, he was a social worker by training, and he very much had a, every individual is a snowflake, and you kind of get to know all of them, and my attitude was, I'm an engineer, you can measure stuff. Anyway, Eliyahu, after about a year of watching the data, was on board. So if you're looking to measure soft skills, it was a research-validated tool by the Linemark. Get out there and use it. All right. What systemic changes are needed to more effectively get people the skills they need for a living wage job? That is a fantastic question. I don't know the exact answer to this, but I'm going to identify some challenges we have right now. If we look in the late 60s, early 70s, we as a nation did a really good job in high school of preparing people for work. But somewhere along the line, the mission of high school became to send everybody to college. And I went to college myself. I'm an educated man. And I'm grateful for it. But the economic data on this are clear. It's a little bit less than a third of jobs in this country that require a bachelor's degree. So we need to ask ourselves as a nation, why are we telling kids to go into five and six figure of debt all to get a degree that two or three of them most likely aren't ever going to need. So within that, I think we need to look at new structures and new systems. And where I think the challenge the universities and colleges face is that they weren't designed to be job training. And if you're wondering what I mean by that, 
just a quick exercise. Out in the audience right now, I imagine I have some people who went to college to be business folks. Maybe I've got a poet out there. I don't know, maybe there's a gym teacher. Maybe some engineers, some scientists, some mathematicians. Are you telling me it takes exactly four years to become a mathematician or a poet or a gym teacher? It just worked out this way? Of course it doesn't. Of course these take different amount of times for differing. But colleges weren't designed to be job training. As such, they work in semesters, they work in different time factors. So if you need to deliver a workforce, I'll use my last college as an example. If the um, Amazon puts in a warehouse and wants a bunch of logistics people, they want to be hiring in six months. It'll take a community college two to three years to get a program approved. It'll take another couple of years to fill it. And then you've got to get graduates out, and they don't get their graduates done in two years. So you can't deliver a workforce in five to seven years for industry that needs it today. So what I believe we need is we need other options. The community college system and the university system are great, and they are necessary to our society, but they are not the workforce answer, and we need to stop asking them to be. I think we need to put new money out in our communities and look for responsive solutions that meet the needs of people today and meet the needs of employers today. Uh, I love the job sharing idea. Uh, so again, as far as the uh, handing with new programs, it may be not be in alignment with the industry demand. So if a college believes its mission is workforce development, then it has to put tremendous focus on its actual employment outcomes. And the thing is, this, these data are regularly available. If you're paying unemployment insurance in your state, then the state knows what you earn and they know where you work. If you're a college, you know who these students are and you have this data also. If you connect that data, you can find out the wages of your graduates. You can also find out where they're working. So if you're motivated as an institution, you can get that data. Until I see universities and colleges focusing as intently on that data as I do with their other institutional data they're collecting, I'll believe it's the same priority. But for right now, I think for if you want to get alignment, first start looking at your results and then start responding appropriately to the results. If nobody is going to work in this field, we shouldn't wait 10 years to shut down a program that is economically lost its relevance. We need to respond much more quickly because if we're taking new students in and we're taking their money and we take their time and they wind up with a credential without a credential or with a credential they can't use, I believe we do those students harm. Um, what can higher education do to better ensure its programs need to live in wage? Uh, well, as I detailed uh, during my talk, one of the things I would highly recommend is get your local economic data. Know what the living wage jobs are in your area and build around those and build with the people who have them. Don't look at national data, don't look at state data. If your folks are going to stay in your area, you need to be relevant in your local economy. Um, let me see what else we've got out there. I think that's everything for today. So uh, again, my name is Mike Metzger. Uh, if you have follow-up or want a copy of anything I've done today or just want to chat about any of this, uh, my email's up there, Mike at TDO. And uh, thank you so much.